Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're going to explore the dynamics of China's rise on the world stage. China's growing economic, military, diplomatic, and technological power has prompted it to become more assertive in its foreign policy to defend and advance Chinese interests. Countries on China's periphery and even far beyond are uncertain about the willingness and ability of the United States to actively counterbalance Chinese power. As a result, many nations around the world are are reevaluating how their own values and interests are impacted. By their relationships with China, to these nations, Chinese hegemony is not a preferable outcome, and many have begun to push back against what they see as an increasingly aggressive and uncompromising China. Likewise, many nations have started to advocate for a strengthened international rules-based order that can prevent large nations from trampling on the rights of smaller ones. To discuss the future of China's power in a dynamic world. I'm joined by Dr. Luke Pady. Dr. Pady is a senior researcher at the Danish Institute for International Studies and a lead senior research fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. His latest book is called "How China Loses: The Pushback Against Chinese Global Ambitions," and it was recently published by Oxford University Press. Luke, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. So throughout your book, you challenge the the idea that an ascendant China is going to lead to a a world in which small developing countries in continents like Africa and, and places like Latin America form a sphere of influence for China. And instead, you contend that these nations really aren't content to play a subservient role. But of course, most of these countries are weak. And they lack the means to defend their interests. So, can we expect that this discontent in these countries will actually translate into meaningful action to defend their interests where they conflict with Chinese interests? And and are there already examples of such pushback? Definitely, over the past two decades, China has become you know the largest trading partner to many countries in Africa and Latin America. It's a big provider of finance. It's a big investor in South and Southeast Asia. So it has, you know, significant new global power and influence. But at the same time, as China's investments and large infrastructure projects mature over time, they get entangled in in local and regional politics, and this often allows local leaders, but also wider societies in these countries, to push forward their own interests. So let me give you some quick examples. One is South Sudan. That's you know known as quite a weak country. But in 2012, South Sudan decided that it wanted to shut down its oil fields in a dispute with neighboring Sudan. Now China was the largest investor in South Sudan's oil industry and sent its foreign minister and special envoys to settle this dispute and to get South Sudan to keep the oil flowing. But despite all this pressure and offers of finance, South Sudan stuck to its guns. Shut down its oil fields, promoted its interests in face of China's own. Other examples come from the Belt and Road Initiative in Argentina, for example. You have labor unions and the private sector that have successfully pushed their leaders to renegotiate multi-billion-dollar infrastructure projects, so that Argentine workers and local companies got a larger share of these finance deals 
that, that China offers that typically are largely tied to Chinese companies and Chinese exports. And this isn't to say that Argentina or Malaysia or any other state that's part of the Belt and Road Initiative wants to be out of it or does not want this support. But it is to say that there is room for negotiation. There's room for pushback when China overreaches. You argue that small states need to work together, that they have to lend their collective weight to multilateral efforts to protect their interests. And yet, of course, many of these states have different interests, different values. Uh, One of the areas that I pay attention to, for example, is Southeast Asia and the claimants of the South China Sea, which would be able to strengthen their position if they could work together against China. But yet we really haven't seen any demonstration of their willingness to do so or the broader association of Southeast Asian nations. Instead, we see a bunch of states unilaterally trying to protect their interests. So in the issues that that you looked at and the parts of the world that you examine in the book, do you see examples where smaller states are willing to act multilaterally in their dealings with China? I think it's true that small states, there's a great diversity in their interests, in their values. It's hard for them to, to act in unison. But I think there are examples where they they have been able to get China involved in what they want to get China involved in. South China Sea disputes are, are a difficult case. But if we look at, for instance, the recently signed Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, the world's largest trade deal, it's often cited as being China-led. But in fact, it, it wasn't China that sort of pushed it forward. Neither was it its other large participants, Japan or South Korea. It was the 10 countries of ASEAN, which started the negotiations in 2012. And they did so knowing that China, Japan, and South Korea have struggled for political reasons to get their free trade deal moving forward. And they knew that this trade deal, RCEP, would advance their interests as small states. But I also think that that middle powers, countries like Japan and India, they also need to play a bigger role if the world is going to maintain sustain and build on the rules-based order. And we see that Japan has done this at times after uh, U.S. President Trump abandoned the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Tokyo stepped up and kept the trade agreement alive, rallying the remaining 11 members to stay engaged. And of course, the deal doesn't have the same size and breadth as it would have if the Americans had stayed on board and, and later ratified it. But it still has high standards on state-owned enterprises, on labor, on environmental issues. It's still the world's most advanced trade deal. So I think if, particularly if middle powers lead the way, there's a lot that small states with those larger partners can actually do. I'd be interested in how you think about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on these dynamics and the willingness of countries to push back against China. And one example that I remember is early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of criticism by African nations because there was discriminatory treatment of uh, citizens from African countries in Chinese cities during the, the pandemic. Now, fast forward till today, that was really a year ago. Has this criticism endured and has it had a negative impact on China's ties with African nations? Or has now the vaccine diplomacy that China is conducting, has that been effective 
in ameliorating this criticism? Well, I think the, the discriminatory treatment that Africans experienced in Guangzhou and elsewhere, uh, sort of in the beginning of the pandemic, that won't soon be forgotten. But I think you're correct in alluding that official relations between African countries and China are, are quite positive and robust and support in handling the COVID-19 pandemic by providing vaccinations, for example, that will be received warmly by African countries. That said, I think, you know, the majority of African countries, they want diversity in their foreign relations. As Kenya's president, Uhuru Kenyatta, recently said, he wants to lower his country's large trade imbalance with China, but he also wants a free trade deal with the USA. Another example is, is in a recent poll done of citizens in 18 African countries. It showed that China is, is slightly ahead in front of the U.S. in terms of a positive influencer, but that most Africans polled, they still want to follow the U.S. as the best model for development. So I think what Africans, um, countries largely want is a, di a diversity of foreign partners from China and the U.S. to India and the U.K. They're interested in having balance in their relations and drawing in investment and trade and development assistance from all countries around the world. I've been interested in what I guess is a minority view um, or maybe a muted view among experts in China who have criticized China's foreign policy as being too overbearing. Uh, some who advocate that China should go back to its uh, guideline of Deng Xiaoping, of, you know, uh, Tao Guangyanghui, to hide your capabilities and bide your time or keep a low profile. And there's even been some prominent intellectuals uh, in, in China and, and officials. And Deng Xiaoping's eldest son, Deng Pufang, is one who's apparently criticized China's foreign policy. This is, to me, a question as to whether this is a trend. Do you think that these views that uh, China has overreached, essentially, has resonated at all with China's leadership. Will they have an impact? Or is China just in this inexorable path of becoming ever more assertive and aggressive? I think, you know, it, there have been sort of these occasional outspoken voices that have sort of called for calm in China's assertive stances abroad. But it's really hard to put your finger on a strong, consistent contingency of ambassadors or foreign ministry officials who in the foreign policy establishment represent a bloc that wants sort of a, a less assertive China. Because, you know, President Xi and Foreign Minister Wang Yi have called upon diplomats to take a tough stance. So I don't, I don't see this style of, you know, wolf warrior diplomacy going away anytime soon. That being said, I don't think that we should assume that, you know, tensions will continue to, to escalate. And I think, you know, American or European officials should still pursue cooperation with China where it's possible. And of course, the debate is, is centered around climate and other sort of global issues. But we shouldn't forget the more national level or regional level issues, such as American and Chinese partnership in the fight against Ebola in Africa some years ago, where even at an embassy to embassy level, American and Chinese officials were working together. Also, anti-piracy in the Horn of Africa is another example of, of this multilateral cooperation. You even had, you know, European NGOs in Africa working with Chinese state-owned enterprises, energy companies and construction companies. So although, you know, the tensions are still going to be there, 
there are still possibilities for cooperation. They might not be grand and they might not change the world, but there's still things we should pursue. You write in the book that conversations about China's position in the world have become increasingly entrenched in this dichotomy of hawks and doves. And you maintain that an effective China strategy is one that avoids these extremes of overreaction and naivete. So given the fact that there is a wide diversity of opinion on China, and I think that's really true in virtually every country in the world, and this includes the extreme ends of the spectrum, how can national leaders meaningfully escape from this dichotomy, which you see as problematic? I think if national leaders recognize that, that these labels, hawks and doves, they're, they're often used by some to discredit and distract positions on China without genuinely investigating the merits or the flaws of the arguments or, or policy advice in question. Often the media or academic debates, they'll have a, a discussion about whether we should engage or confront China, who's for this and who's against it. But surely we need to recognize that the importance of China demands more nuance, that we should stop to hang everything related to China on this very sort of binary apparatus. And I think it's important that if we can move away from this sort of black and white positioning, we can start to see that actually, you know, our business relations, political relations and, and security dynamics with China are all, are all really interlinked and packaged together. And that's how leaders need to think about it, rather than just assuming that, you know, a, a hawkish opinion is purely security related, or business is purely dovish. There are interlinks. And I, I would sort of push national leaders to look past these labels and to start thinking of the interconnections between their relations with China. You know, that reminds me that the Biden-Harris administration really has defined relations with China as three different components, uh, one being areas where we cooperate, where our interests converge, and a second area would be areas where we fundamentally disagree and where we will, United States will confront China if necessary. And then the third area is where we will just compete. And hopefully that is healthy competition, but some areas would be strategic competition. So is the U.S. right in thinking about our relations with China in these three baskets, or are they so deeply interconnected that we should not think about them as divided into these categories? Yeah, the categorization, of course, reminds me of how the European Union you know, is often characterized in China. You know, I think it's the wrong approach. It's an easy way, I think, to uh, to sort of sell to the public how the U.S. Is, is going to remain engaged, but also stand strong where it needs to. But the fact is that, uh, you know, trade and business with China is closely, often intimately connected with, with security issues. Take, you know, the, the Huawei example and 5G mobile networks and how they're set to sort of change our way of lives and, and revolutionize industry. And that opens up for major security concerns. So, I mean, not everything can be neatly packaged into these boxes. Surely some things can. But I think, particularly when it comes to new technologies, we have to think in sort of a more complex way in our relations with China. I want to ask you a bit about Japan's role. Uh, you talked earlier about the example of Japan taking the CPTPP across the finish line after the United States withdrew. And Japan's role in the region, I think, is 
extremely important and increasingly important and often not really fully appreciated. But we've seen Japan more actively use its diplomatic and its economic toolkit to secure its own interests and、uh, to check China's activity in the region at the same time, of course, that it's tightening its alliance with the United States. But we see Japan acting itself to build port infrastructure in Hanoi. It's been working on undersea cable project in Palau along with the US and Australia and developing ties with India. So, how do you see these activities as differing from if you were to compare with China's Belt and Road Initiative? And particularly, how are they viewed by these countries? Do countries view Japan and, and China's involvement in their infrastructure building very differently? Well, I think the Japan example is great because it, it really brings out the fact that there's more diversity of power and potential for cooperation in the world today than this dichotomy of US China rivalry often presents. That middle powers can get things done as well. And, you know, I, I don't think Japan alone can, can offer an alternative to, to the China's Belt and Road, but I think it can play a role in certain neighborhoods. If you go just by the infrastructure finance that Japan has lined up for Southeast Asian countries, it's still outpacing China. So I, I think these countries certainly see you know, Japan as a, as a close trade investment and, and development partner, just as they do China. And if you look at South Asia, we see a more active India,、uh, particularly reaching out to some of its neighboring countries now,、uh, some of them that have leaned more to China of late. But now New Delhi is, is coming with its own sort of vaccination diplomacy. We see Australia more active in the South Pacific. And I have no doubt in the coming years that Indonesia will become more vocal in its own neighborhood. So we're in a multipolar world. China's a big part of it. And we need to make sure that we don't slip up and constantly view things through a US versus China lens, but see that other countries, particularly middle powers, Can play a big role in, in shaping global affairs and the global economy. Another question I have is about how you see the quad or the quadrilateral security dialogue. And this is, of course, the United States, Australia, India, and Japan, which, after a decade of very little activity, has really built at least a sort of dialogue structure and to some extent activities, as we have seen with the Malabar. Exercise that took place recently. And in my view, the Quad is important because China fears the formation of an anti China coalition. And the Quad, I think, represents that potential. And so then the Quad, from my perspective, perhaps carries the potential for influencing China, maybe moderating some of its policies. But that depends in part on. What the members of the Quad are willing to do in order to strengthen deterrence. So far, it remains informal. It lacks institutions. We'll see whether it continues to develop in the coming years. But I'm curious what you think the Quad countries should do and whether you think that they can have an impact on China's behavior. I think when speaking of the Quad, it's, it's firstly important to recognize that it wasn't something. Directed by Washington necessarily. If we look at the history just in the past 20 years, I see things in the Indo Pacific region really getting started 
under Shinzo Abe's first term as prime minister. And in 2007, he went and, and gave a speech at the Indian parliament in New Delhi, calling on you know, closer Japanese-Indian relations. And in his second stint as prime minister, he developed a close relationship with Prime Minister Modi and institutionalized a lot of new defense cooperation mechanisms. In the years after that, you know, India's deteriorating relations with China also sort of made Prime Minister Modi shake off some of this standoffishness he had towards the Quad uh, and, and working closely with Japan and Australia and the United States. So I think if, if we ground the history of the Quad in the sort of concerns and fears of some of China's neighbors towards China's rise and towards American, you know, at the time, American disengagement from Asia, which is no longer the case, then we can understand that this thing is probably going to last and is probably going to grow if China's military assertiveness continues to, to do so. And now we even see that, you know, European interest in the region is growing. The UK is talking about joining the security dialogue. So I think the Quad, as an idea, just in itself, can act as a powerful deterrence to China's military adventurism and expansion in the South China Sea, East China Sea, and maybe even over the Taiwan Strait. But of course, it needs to become more formalized. These discussions need to grow further. Quad members need to be able to demonstrate that they're actually prepared to defend one another's interests. And that's a big ask. It's something that has taken time. But if you see the direction it's going with new sort of joint military logistics and supply arrangements, new military exercises, then that tells me that the Quad is not going away anytime soon. Well, you mentioned Europe. So let me ask you about what you think is the real trend in Europe's relationship with China and its role here in, in these dynamics. Because we've certainly seen a negative trend in European perceptions of China, just as we have seen a negative tilt in, in American assessments of China. But at the same time, we saw the EU just recently sign the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment. And that suggests to me that commercial interests are going to remain a major driver of EU policy toward China. And my guess is that Beijing is counting on the appeal of its economy to continue to drive a wedge between the United States and Europe. So, you know, is China's calculus correct? Or do you think that this trend of growing concern in the public in Europe will ultimately have a greater impact on EU policy? Yeah, I think we're at a transition point because, you know, European leadership seems to be a little bit out of step with popular opinion on China. And I think what will dictate, you know, the main thrust of, of European policy on China, uh, what will dictate whether Beijing can drive a wedge in transatlantic relations is whether European policymakers can, can begin to see the difference between corporate interests of some of its large corporations in China and the national interests and economic welfare of their countries, because they're not always the same. So, for instance, you know, the EU trades around 6% of its total trade goes to China. A little bit more in 2019 went to the US. But EU trade, the majority of it, 60%, is actually within the European Union. So there's not this strong economic dependency of the EU on China. Even for Germany, the big trading partner within the EU of China, China is its largest trading partner. 8% of its trade goes to China. But the US and the Netherlands 
They represent 7% of Germany's trade and France 6%. So this isn't a dependent relationship on any single actor in Germany's trading portfolio. It's actually a very diverse group. Even growth in new trade for Germany comes from its EU partners. Since 2015, for example, 15% of new trade came from China. But that only equals the same amount as Italy and Poland combined. So if you, you, you count some of the other EU member states like France, it exceeds what the new trade that comes from China. So the, the crux of the problem is companies like Volkswagen, Airbus, around 20% of their sales are in China. They see remarkable growth in China and they push European leaders towards these, these investment deals that help their corporate interests. But European policymakers, I think, need to start studying that it's not necessarily a straight line between the success of European companies in China and new jobs and welfare for Europe. So they need to shift the priority from looking at total sales and number of factories of European companies in China to start counting the jobs and the welfare that those companies generate for their home economies and designing trade and investment policy to build that up. So finally, um, let me ask you a sort of general question. What aspect of Chinese foreign policy do you think is least understood by the outside world? What are countries fundamentally getting wrong about China? I think we often, you know, in, in advanced democracies in North America, Europe and East Asia, we often exaggerate China's economic power or its willingness to use its economic power. And we see this, I think, with a lot of the economic coercion that China has used against countries in the past decade or so. You know, when China uses trade or investment restrictions against other countries, there's often much more bark than bite to this coercion. This is the case when, you know, for Japan, South Korea, when it targeted Norway, more recently Canada, and Australia even in the last year. You know, only around 1% of Australia's total trade has been hit by, by sort of bans and, and new tariffs from China. And this figure doesn't even count the production of, of coal and the trade in wine that China targeted that has actually been diverted to other trading partners. So I think this shows us that China is actually pretty sensitive about upsetting its own economic interests in these political disputes. And that doesn't mean that targeted countries should just sit back and, and take it. I mean, these trade restrictions affect people's jobs. They affect people's livelihoods. And China's on, you know, has a, a very clear plan that it wants to become more self-sufficient in critical industries. It wants to lower imports and replace this with domestic production and domestic consumption. So there's a need, I think, for countries to, to work more closely together to, to send signals to China that, you know, this can't continue. And this, they can do this through pushing for WTO reform that can respond more swiftly to these trade measures and other joint responses. So the basic point, though, is, you know, China, I think, is on a path to become the world's largest economy, probably by the end of this decade. It's going to become a tech leader in different fields. But we're in a multipolar world and countries like the U.S., India and the European Union as a whole can, if they work together, push back and maintain a rules based order. We've been talking with Dr. Luke Patey and his book. How China Loses, the pushback against Chinese global ambitions is uh, available and uh, you can buy it on Amazon or at your local bookstores if you still have any where you live. <laughs> but uh, this has been a terrific discussion. Thanks for joining us today, Luke. Thanks so much.